So our featured guest tonight is, of course, Hugh Mackay. Hugh's a, a social psychologist and the author of 22 books, including eight novels. His nonfiction covers social analysis, psychology, communication, and ethics. He's had a 60-year career in social research and was also a weekly newspaper columnist for 23 years. He's a fellow of the Australian Psychological Society and of the Royal Society of New South Wales and has been awarded honorary doctorates by no less than five Australian universities. So he doesn't have to do a PhD like you, I'm afraid. <laughs> Didn't even have to write an exegesis I apologise to Melanie for the honorary <laughs> doctorates. I know what a real doctorate must feel like. <laughs> And he was appointed an officer of the Order of Australia in 2015 and is currently an honorary professor at the Research School of Psychology at the Australian National University and the author of this new book, The Kindness Revolution. Please welcome Hugh Mackay to Malay. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much. Now, Hugh, you, you, you begin this book about kindness by equating what Australians have done during the COVID era uh, with, uh, with, with love which mm. might seem to be some to be a bold claim, but both individually and nationally, but it's not a claim you make lightly. You talk quite a bit about the nature of kindness. Could you, could you mm. expand on that or mm. why, why you've made this claim? Yes, I, I describe Australia in, in 2020 as, as a place where we saw an unprecedented outpouring of love, um, but I, I, of course, need to explain what kind of love that is. Um, I think of kindness as the purest form of human love. All, all, all forms of human love are wonderful, of course. Romantic love is exciting. Um, familial love is remarkable, allowing us to keep loving people that don't always appeal to us. Uh, <laughs> companionate love, we, our mental and emotional health absolutely depends on the, the love of friendship. But then there's this other remarkable form of love, which I have come to think of pondering it last year in the wake of the bushfires and then the pandemic, uh, I've come to think of it as the most precious asset that our species possesses. Uh, and I think of kindness as the only form of human love that doesn't rely on emotion. Uh, it doesn't rely on affection. Kindness is responding to someone's need or even to their presence in the world uh, warmly, without necessarily liking them, without necessarily agreeing with them. In fact, isn't, uh, when you reflect on this, isn't it a fantastic thing to say about the species that we belong to, that we have that capacity? If someone, if someone is in, in obvious need of help, you don't say, how did you vote in the last election? Uh, where do you stand on the bodily resurrection of Jesus? I mean, you don't have a list of questions to qualify whether they deserve your help, whether you could like them or warm to them. Not at all. It's a human in need. You're a human. You simply respond. Samuel Johnson, 250 years ago, wrote something that I think was deeply wise. I've quoted it uh, in the front of the book. Kindness is in our power even when fondness is not. In other words, kindness is like our default position. It, it relates to that lovely poetic phrase that Abraham Lincoln used when he talked of the better angels of our nature. That's who we are in essence. 
That's the frame of reference, that's the way of being in the world when we're being fully, flourishingly, authentically human. Now there are many things that distract us of course from our capacity for kindness. We can be distracted by competitive urges or ambition or materialism or rampant individualism. We can maybe talk about some of those things. But in, at the core of our being, we are disposed to kindness for the very good reason. And by the way, this is not just some speculative point. This is now something demonstrable by neuroscientists. Because we belong to a social species, we are utterly dependent on each other. I mean, if you belong to a social species, then by definition you're hopeless in isolation. Uh, we all need periods of solitude. Every day we need periods of solitude to recharge our batteries for the demanding business of being a human. Um, but we absolutely need families, neighbourhoods, communities, groups, workplaces, uh, groups of, of all kinds to nurture us and sustain us and to give us, for humans, that crucial sense of belonging which is fundamental to our mental and emotional health. In other words, we, are, we belong to a cooperative species and neuroscientists can tell you there's a cooperative centre in the brain. Well, if we're built to cooperate, then we're built for kindness. Mm. I mean, how does that differ, though, from politeness? I mean, you, uh, you, some of the examples you give, for example, is that you know, if you see an old person wandering across the street and is having trouble, one will stop doing what one's doing and help the person across, regardless of whether they're Catholic or Protestant or Hindu. <laughs> yeah? And yes. from my perspective, that I could no, no more not do that than spit in their face because mm. that was the way I was brought up. Mm. You know, my, my, my mother would say, you were brought up proper, that's why you do it. Well, and what I would say is your mother nurtured your innate capacity for kindness. Not everyone nurtures it, but you're fortunate that, that, that your parents did nurture it, yes. But it is different from, from niceness. I mean, if you were being nice, you might stand on the footpath and say, look at that poor old woman. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're being kind, you'd, you'd, you'd do something about it. I mean, of course there's a bit of a blurry distinction here, but you can be coldly polite without any kindness being present. Yes, uh, being being and, and by the way, niceness sounds a bit pathetic, sounds a bit feeble, a bit soft. I think it's very important, Stephen, that we, right at the beginning of this conversation, we recognise that kindness is a really strong quality and, 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 and belongs with a word like revolution. Uh, to be kind is not to be a pushover, is not to be a doormat, not to be acquiescent, doesn't mean you agree with every, everything everyone says or do everything that people ask you to do. To be kind, you can be kind and firm. You can discipline your kids kindly. You can terminate a relationship kindly. You can terminate someone's employment kindly. You can complain to your neighbour about their barking dog kindly. It's, I, I, I want to reuse a phrase I've already used. It's a way of being in the world. It's a way of being wonderfully human, which does not mean soft and feeble. In fact, quite the reverse. Whereas niceness, I think, often is, yeah. uh, you know, just a bit feeble. So, 
you've been writing books about Australian culture and society for, as I said, several decades, and, and really there are very few other people in our culture that have the experience that you have of that. I was wondering whether this book, The Kindness Revolution, that you've come here, is this a kind of culmination or a, or a distillation of all the things mm. that you've been learning during that period? It is. Um, in fact, the, the publisher on the back cover blurb wrote, um, the, the Kindness Revolution is a distillation of Hugh McKay's life's work. Oh, God almighty, I don't think I read that. I never read the back of books. <laughs> and I rang up and said, uh, I quite like the draft blurb, but a, a distillation of his life's work. So it does sound as if I'm dead and I'm not. Uh, <laughs> however, I, I get what they were driving at. It is, it is, it, it, it's two things at once. It's ultra-contemporary because I'm trying... 2020 was like a dream social laboratory for a social psychologist. Australia responding to two major crises reminded us of how humans tend to respond to crises. We first of all panic and become fearful and then the better angels prevail and we start caring and making sacrifices for the common good. So, so this is a book about how we deal with the crisis, and in particular, those crises from 2020. But it's also, as you say, Stephen, it's also a, a wrapping up of themes uh, in my work over, over um, many decades. And it probably is my last run at this kind of social analysis. I feel as though I've said what I want to say in this book um, more than in any previous book. I always felt there was more to say. Now I, there's a lot more fiction to be written, but I don't know that I'll... I'm, I'm pretty sure I won't tackle another non-fiction book like this. Um, but just in terms of the long view that you're, that you're referring to, I think the, uh, the most interesting thing to me... And by the way, when I'm talking about Australia being a social laboratory in 2020, that sounds really heartless. No, I didn't uh, think it did at all. I well, thought, I mean, I, I understand that it's been a dreadful time for a lot of people from the point of view of their health... Uh, some families have been bereaved as a result of COVID. It's been a dreadful time for people who lost their livelihood or whose businesses folded. I understand all that. Uh, but just from the point of view of something to study and analyse, it's been a very, very rich experience. But what's most significant about it to me in terms of that long view is that if you look at the last 30 or 40 years of Australia's social evolution you're looking at a period in which we've been reshaped by some very significant social trends. Uh, I'll mention a couple of them in a minute, but the, the cumulative effect of those trends has been to take us in a direction which is exactly the opposite of what 2020 did to us. So up until the end of 2019, what I was saying and other social analysts were saying was that Australia, like so many Western societies, was experiencing increasing social fragmentation. A kind of atomization. The atomization is the word sociologists coined for it. Um, a period of rampant individualism when we became obsessed with our uniqueness as individuals, we became obsessed with our independence. The full flowering of the so-called me culture uh, has been identity politics and the obsession with identity. Now, I don't diminish at all the importance of people's identity to themselves and 
we need our own identity so people can tell which of us is Stephen and which is Hugh. I mean, we have to be able to tell the difference between each other. But I think we went under the influence of some major social changes. We went too far in the direction of thinking of ourselves as unique, independent individuals with this identity, only focus on my identity, neglecting a far deeper truth about us, which is that we share a common humanity, that we exist in a kind of vibrating web of interconnectedness, and that's the most significant thing about us. And yes, we are also independent individuals, but things like our shrinking households, Within the next 10 years, every third Australian household will contain just one person. That's, that's a radically different society from the one most of us grew up in. Um, our, our sustained high rate of relationship breakdown, between 35 and 40% of contemporary marriages will end in divorce. Our extreme busyness, um, have you know, it, it, it's even changed the way we greet each other. Have you noticed in, now in Australia, up until last year, we would say, how are you going, Stephen? Busy? As though, come on, you know, is the switch on or off? Are you busy or are you dead? Uh, you, and, and, that, and busyness is, of course, the great barrier to social cohesion. But also our embrace of information technology. No doubt we can talk a bit more about that later too. Um, but so, social uh, um, information technology is a paradox. I mean, it promises to connect us like never before, and it did, especially in 2020. Weren't we grateful for the fact that we lived at a time in human history when the technology made it so easy for us to be connected? To, to, but be, to be separate and to be connected yeah, at yes. the same time, yes. And that's the paradox, that, yeah. that, that, that it, it, it creates the illusion of connectedness. We are exchanging a lot of data with each other, but it's easier than ever to be apart from each other. And one of the things 2020 reminded us, uh, I think, is that nothing beats eye contact. And you can't make eye contact and on Zoom or FaceTime. It feels as if you're just staring at a screen. Uh, it's a radically different, qualitatively different kind of connection. Anyway, I uh, won't go on with all that, but, but those sort of trends are the things that have pushed individualism and caused so, uh, underpinned by the way, by 28 years of continuous economic growth, which has been saying to us, well, we must be doing something right. Look how well we're doing. A terrible preparation for a crisis. Uh, and then 2020. And what did 2020 tell us as, as a societal catastrophe or a crisis, an earthquake, a flood, a fire, uh, a famine, a plague, a pandemic? tells us societally, or a personal crisis, a bereavement, a relationship breakdown, a, 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 a life-threatening illness, a retrenchment. Uh, all of these things cause us to reflect deeply on what really matters to us. And in the case of a societal threat, like the pandemic, first the fires, then the pandemic, reminds us that actually all this stuff about how separate and unique and individual we are and, you know, pay attention to my... All swept away, we are one. Yeah. Uh, we are united in as, as a community dealing with a threat and what happens without a second thought or a backward glance? First of all, we, we tend to obey the rules because the rules 
guide us about how to express our care for each other, stay at home, wear a mask, keep your distance, whatever it is, but way beyond that. I mean, sure, in Mullaney, in Brisbane, in Canberra, where I live, all over Australia, thousands and thousands of wonderful stories of people rediscovering their neighbourhood, particularly in our major cities where neighbourhoods have been seriously neglected for several decades. Mm. Um, but people suddenly remembering that the bloke at the end of the street might be at risk of social isolation. Maybe he needs a hand. This, this kind of crisis always brings out our deep humanity. And that was a contradiction of a 35 or 40 year trend. So that's why I think we've got the potential because it's such a disruption to the way we'd been going, moving in the American direction, rampant individualism. Uh, we, we've got this huge opportunity, a magic moment to say, look, we've been brought up short. We've been reminded that we are one that we need to be more caring towards each other, why not turn the crisis into a revolution? Yeah. Why not internalise these lessons and start to apply them more generally? And, and on a very personal level, which is what you're talking about, because the book is not really about COVID, is it? I mean, the COVID... No, 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 no it's just a jumping-off that, point. That's, a, that's kind of just a jumping-off mm. point. Mm. And what you've done in the book, which... which every other book is supposed to, but it's, it's set into chapters, and in each chapter you deal with a particular kind of issue around interpersonal relationships and, and a whole lot of other questions. And I was just curious before we... Because I'd like to kind of address some of the chapters mm. kind mm. of individually that you're yes. talking about, but before we moved on to that, I was, I, I, what I was keen to hear from you was what, what your thread as the author of the book was that you were kind of following through it, if that's, if, if that's a reasonable question. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I guess the, 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 the thread was, because in fact, uh, I started thinking, I was in, con in conversation with the publisher about this book pre-COVID. Um, we, we had the bushfires and we thought that was enough of a crisis to use as a reference point, yeah. and then COVID hit. So really the... the um, the thread I was following was, look how complex all our lives are. Uh, look how contradictory so much of our behaviour is. Um, uh, look at how unpredictable life is. Look how accidental so many of our so-called decisions are. Yeah. Um, what job to do, where to live, who to marry, whether or not to have children, etc. Um, uh, and yet, there's a kind of pattern that, that emerges. There's a kind of coherence which begins to become more obvious later in life. So that was one thread that I was following. The other, the other one, um, which is intriguing and probably will resonate with a number of people in the room, uh, I'm intrigued about what happens at the midlife uh, and, and what tends to happen is, in the first half of life, we are obsessed with identity. We are obsessed with establishing who we are, getting our toehold on the planet, defining ourselves in terms of our relationships, our personal style, our job, all that sort of stuff. And what is sometimes re often referred to as the midlife crisis, um, whether it's dramatic or, 
or uh, more muted is typically, not universally, but typically the point in our 40s where the focus starts to turn from the obsession with self to a more outer focus. Uh, so we start thinking of ourselves much more in relation to the people who need us. We start thinking of our lives much more in terms of what we've contributed to others, how we've responded to others, whereas in the first half of life we tend to be... And, and by the way, in following this thread, I was also uh, taking an autobiographical framework because that was certainly true in my own life. I was very obsessed with getting things done and making my mark and getting established and so on. And then in the second half of life... I mean, there's a, there's a famous graph... Uh, it's a U-curve um, based on some international research which shows that life satisfaction tends to go down through adolescence, continue on its downward path to the 40s and then begins to increase. So typically people in their 60s and 70s are experiencing much more life satisfaction than they did in their 20s, 30s and 40s. That's certainly true in my own case. Now in my 80s, I'd say life is richer, more fulfilling uh, in all kinds of ways now and for the last 10 or 20 years than it was when I was struggling and striving. So what's that all about? And I think what that's about is as we mature, as we become a bit less intense about self and the expression of self and our, our self-absorbed agenda, we do become more fully human. That, that maturing, the movement towards, dare we use the word wisdom, is a movement towards a deeper understanding of what common humanity means and its significance compared with individual identity. I so mean, those that, were the that big would, thing. That would kind of happen also. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm interrupting here for a second, but it, it strikes me that that would happen because in midlife we, we've had children who have now kind of, reaching adulthood, but we also then find ourselves starting to have to look after our parents who are starting mm. to uh, decline on the other side. So there's that, mm. there, there's a much greater awareness of our, our place in a, in a web of, mm. of life, as it were. Yes, I think that's very true. And the, and the other very obvious point I suppose to make about this, which does relate to one the second last chapter of the book, is that we become much more conscious of our mortality. It, it dawns on us that we're not going to live forever. Um, and it's well, my no, it dawned on you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It is my a, melancholy duty to inform you that you will die. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, and so will I, you know, yeah. any, any minute, more or less. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so, well, so that's... Not before 8 o'clock, <laughs> if that's all right. You're, you're, no, no, we'll that, make it to the end of Q&A. Yeah. Um, but that, 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 that is a really important perspective. And as people age, uh, I mean, there's a lot of talk about the fear of death. As people age, my experience in research uh, over the years has been that that's not the universal story at all. There are many people who fully accept that they have a, 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 a short span on the planet, that, that they are mortal, uh, that they're, they're going to leave, and when they leave... Uh, we don't know what will happen. It'll either be oblivion so they won't know or it'll be some form of existence so unlike this one that we can barely imagine it. But there will be that moment, probably the sole moment of perfection in a life, namely death. 
when you die, you are perfectly dead. And probably... <laughs> Nothing until so, that. So we kind of mess up all the way through. But the one, the one That's thing right. you do right, the you one know. thing you you always <laughs> succeed at is dying. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's something to look forward to. Yes, exactly. So, <laughs> um, so I think that 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 I mean, in fact, we maybe we'll come back to that, or maybe we should deal with it now since we're talking about death. But I think that perspective. Saul Bellow in in his in his novel Humboldt's Gift had a wonderful metaphor where he described death as the dark backing on a mirror that allows us to see ourselves in the mirror. And I think that death perspective... I mean, this occurred to me a little bit when I was writing a book some years ago called The Good Life. I had a chapter in... The last chapter of that book was called A Good Death. Um, but in this book, uh, the writing of this book... and partly because of my age, obviously, uh, really did sharpen up my sense of the value of the death perspective. Because as we approach the end of our lives, especially on the metaphorical deathbed, or in the last few weeks or months of our life, when perhaps we know that we don't have long to go, there is one thing we can guarantee. Nobody at that stage of their life will ever say, I wish I'd made more money or I wish I'd been busier, I didn't run hard enough yeah. uh, or I wish I'd kicked more goals, you know, literally or metaphorically. Yeah. What they are bound to say and the evidence is there in, in literature, it's there in psychology, uh, it's there in the literature of death uh, and, it's, uh, and it's there in the experience of many families is that towards the end, people are preoccupied with love. They're preoccupied with whether they have been a loving enough partner or parent, whether they've been a loyal enough friend, whether they've been a kind enough neighbour, uh, whether there is someone they should have forgiven or someone to whom they should have apologised. It's not unusual for people in the very last stage of their life to ask to see someone that they need to apologise to or need to forgive. So what I'm suggesting here is, part of the revolution in fact, is that we adopt the death perspective now, not, not when, when we're ancient. Um, I said at an event in Brisbane on Friday night, why not start when you're 32? And afterwards a young man came to me and said, I turned 32 today. <laughs> I think I'll start. And what I'm, what I'm suggesting is every night, as a little evening meditation, we simply reflect on the day and ask ourselves the question that is the big capital B question, capital Q, at the end of our lives, was I kind enough? To reflect each day, was I kind enough, is, is part of my frustration that I wasn't kind enough, that I was too short with someone, that I didn't listen when I should have listened to whatever it might be. Not in a judgmental way, but just in a reflective way so that tomorrow I'll be a bit enriched, uh, a bit enlivened by having reflected on ways in which I was and wasn't kind enough today. And Thank you, thank you yes. Um, one of the chapters in the book that I found most 
uh, most moving or most most effective was. Oh, and I just need to take a quick aside before I go on to my next question, which was to say that one of the things I liked about the book was that you quote liberally from Saul Bellow's Humboldt's Gift, which is one of the greatest novels ever written. Yes. Just you know, if you haven't read it, go out and buy it and read it. Um, and also from Tony Jutt from The Memory Chalet, which are uh, an extraordinary book and an book, extraordinary man, extraordinary yes. historian. So yes. you, know, you, you won me over just with those two, those two references that you make. But, but what I was going to say was that one, the chapter that I found most um, appealing to me in many ways was the chapter you had about listening, which mm -hmm. talked about a lot of other things other than mm -hmm. listening. But what you were basically saying is that the great human desire is this desire to be heard. Mm. Yes. And in fact, if, if people in the audience said at the end of this session, okay, I like the idea of a kindness revolution, I'm going to sign up, what should I do? Uh, you've, you've put your finger on the very thing that I would say. The first, okay, you're going to, going to join the revolution. First thing, sharpen your listening skills. Become a more attentive, empathic listener for precisely the reason that Stephen has just reminded us, that because we are members of a social species, our deepest social need is to be acknowledged by that species, to have other people hear us, other people appreciate us, acknowledge us, and perhaps in the end, remember us as well. Now, listening is probably the most potent sign I can give you, most potent indication I can give you that I am taking you seriously. It's also, I believe, the richest and most therapeutic act of kindness we ever perform for each other. So, so let's just take a moment to consider why I make a statement as large as that. When I listen to someone, I am saying, without needing to put it into words, I take you seriously enough to attend to what you're saying. Not only to attend to what you're saying, but to, to, to entertain your ideas. Tr true listening is not just hearing the words. True listening is briefly entering into the world of the other uh, and entertaining their ideas, even if they are abhorrent. Even if you're never going to accept them, you're never going to agree, you're not qualified to disagree. You're not qualified to object until you've absorbed what that person is saying, until you've given that person the gift of your attentive and empathic listening. Now, notice the converse of that. If when you need me to listen to you, I'm only half listening or I'm looking at my watch impatiently or I'm looking over your shoulder in the hope of catching sight of someone I'd rather be talking to. Yeah. I mean, I don't have to say a word because my behaviour is saying to you, sorry, Stephen, I don't take you seriously enough as a person to bother listening to you. Now, I'd never say that to you face to face in words. You'd never say that to your partner. You'd never say that to your children or your grandchildren. You'd never say it to a colleague. You'd never say it to a neighbour. Yet when we withhold the gift of listening, that's what we're saying. Sorry, I don't take you seriously enough to bother listening. Now, listening is not easy. I'm, I'm, I've, we've talked about the innate capacity we have for kindness. 
uh, and that's true. In some expressions, it's much easier to smile and say hello and keep walking. Uh, that's kind. Uh, unless the person that you're smiling and saying hello to says, oh, hang on, have you got a minute? Yeah. Uh, then it isn't kind to keep walking. Um, but listening does not come easily to us. And that's because I, I just use in, in the book the metaphor of the mind cage. As we, from the age of about three onwards, we are all engaged in the process of building a kind of framework uh, of knowledge, attitudes, beliefs, prejudices, expectations, which are our worldview, really. They're our, it's the framework we have for making sense of the world based on what our experience has taught us. And we feel comfortable and secure within that framework. Yeah. Um, but I call it a cage because we're so comfortable and secure that it's quite hard for us to see or hear what's going on out there uh, without imposing the pattern of the bars of our own cage, the framework of our worldview, on what we're hearing. So, so our prejudices tend to get in the way of what someone is saying to us. Our, if you're a, if you're a, a, a tertiary educated professional, uh, then all of that specialised knowledge gets in the way of understanding what someone who doesn't share that knowledge is trying to say to you. So listening, uh, one of my psychological heroes, Carl Rogers, uh, describes listening as an act of courage. And it's courage because to truly listen to someone so that we qualify ourselves to respond, including to disagree violently, uh, the, the crucial step we have to take is to step outside the comfort and the security of our own mind cage and briefly imagine what that other person's mind cage is like. Uh, and, 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 and what that, might happen is you might change your mind. And that's, <laughs> and that's exactly what Roger says, that it's courageous because you're taking the risk of hearing something that actually you agree with or that causes you to question what you think, that you might change your mind, and none of us enjoy. The older we get, the less we like changing our mind. Uh, so we're very resistant. We tend to, we tend to um, filter what we're hearing, so it reinforces. We tend to see what we're looking for. I mean, there, there's a little story that I uh, tell in the book which illustrates the mind cage problem. Although it comes from a primary school kid. Uh, I was talking to a teacher, a primary school teacher, who said he'd taken his class on a kind of nature ramble and he had said, I want you to observe everything around you and when we get back to the class, when we get back to the school, I want you to write down a list of all the things you've seen while we've been on this ramble. So they did that and the kids came back, wrote their lists and he collected them and one boy in the class uh, had written just one thing on his sheet of paper, no kangaroos. <laughs> and. And so the next day the teacher said to him, I, I, I appreciate that you didn't see any kangaroos, but there's a lot of other stuff out there. What else did, what did you see? And the boy said, I was only looking for kangaroos. <laughs> now that's, that's the, you know, like we are often only looking for messages that will reinforce what we already think. We don't want to hear or read uh, a, a, a dissenting view, an opposing view because it'll make us feel uncomfortable. Well, we, we give each other the gift of feeling uncomfortable. Yeah. 
And, and this leads on. I mean, as I said in the, when I was talking about the way that you've written this book in chapters, you actually deal with a whole lot of different things within each one. And, and the one that you're writing about listening and about being heard can flows directly into the concept of apology and forgiveness, doesn't it? Mm. Yes. Yes, I think of this as the, as the great trinity of kindness, uh, that we will listen attentively and with empathy, not to agree, not, not necessarily to change our mind, but to qualify ourselves to enter into an encounter with another person by appreciating and acknowledging their point of view. Um, Apologising is another wonderful way of demonstrating to someone that you take them seriously. You take them seriously enough to acknowledge that you've hurt or offended them in some way and now you're prepared to apologise for having done so. And forgiveness, of course, is the same. If, if you have been hurt or offended, whether someone has apologised or not, if you are prepared to forgive that person, that is, again, a potent, rich, wonderful way of saying to that person, I'm taking you seriously, uh, I know that, that you know, particularly if they've apologised, I know you feel bad about what you did, I want you to know that it's okay, I'm, I've forgiven you. And in fact, I make, make the point in, in the book uh, that's, I think, not often enough acknowledged that when we forgive someone, that is a moment of liberation for us as well. Until you forgive someone, you are trapped in the role of victim. And once you forgive, you're no longer a victim. Yeah. And one of the things that you then go on to say, in the, I don't know if it's the next chapter, but later on in the book, you talk about the sin of cynicism. Mm. <laughs> well, you don't call it that, but, but, but that's what you're talking about, isn't yes, it, really? absolutely. Yes, cynicism is very fashionable. Uh, it's particularly fashionable among journalists and social commentators. Uh, it's very easy to jump on the, the cynicism bandwagon and say, look how terrible everything is. Look at the state of the world. It's only going to get worse. Um, you know, why, why bother? Uh, the cynics are like... Cynics are marked by the fact that they can only sneer. They can't smile. Uh, they're marked by an inherently pessimistic view of the world, a dark view of the world. Uh, they love it when things go wrong because that's what they said would happen. They love it when people are in trouble um, because that fulfills their, their view of humanity, that we are not capable of goodness or kindness, that it's all a sham. We're all really... In fact, there's a very genteel form of cynicism which is quite fashionable at the moment, which is a kind of transactional view of kindness, which says, you know, people aren't really kind to make the world a better place. They're not really kind because someone has the need of kindness. They're kind because it makes them feel better. You know, and you, you can read people saying, literally, I've quoted a few recent examples in the book, uh, uncharitably quoted them, uh, saying, you know, if you, want to, if you want to feel happier, be kind to people. Well, it's, I mean... That's all the wrong... That, that is incredibly cynical to me. And, and by the way, they'll say there is research to prove that if you're kind to people, you will feel better. Well, I would like to burn the research. I mean, it's irrelevant. That's not what it's about. You might feel better if you show kindness towards someone in a particular situation, and you might not. Uh, 
There's no guarantee, and, and it's not what it's about. It's not about our reward. To, to understand our interconnectedness, to understand what it means to embrace our common humanity is not to say, when I perform an act of charity or kindness, uh, what's in it for me? Will I, will I feel better? Uh, then it's not kindness. Then it's, then it's some self-serving thing. It's, it's, a, it's a, a strategy for making me feel better. And that's not what kindness is about. Kindness is about making other people feel better and making the world a better place. So I think we've, I think we've got to stamp that out. You, you can find the same thing at the moment creeping back into the business world, the commercial world. It happened in the 90s and it's happening again now. People saying good ethics is good business, as though if you behave ethically, that will improve the bottom line. And we've got research to prove it. Well, I'd burn that research too. Because what, what are you going to say? You're going to say, well, if it, did, if it didn't improve the bottom line, we wouldn't do it. Surely we do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. We don't, we don't behave ethically in business in order, to prove the, in order to improve the bottom line. We do that because we're morally sensitive creatures and we want to do the right thing. And kindness is the same. We're morally sensitive creatures. We understand our responsibilities as members of this species our responsibilities to care for the planet that sustains the species and to care for each other. Uh, it's not to make ourselves feel better. But, I mean, there's a little bit of a paradox here in what you're saying, because if I'm, if I'm kind, if I listen to people, my life is better. So It might it, be. It, so, well, I mean, surely I'm that's... Not, I'm not prepared to give that guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, OK, I'm... It's sometimes my, desperately my... inconvenient to be kind. It's sometimes really irritating. It, I, I quote an example in the book. Someone's, um, it, there's a rainstorm. Someone's walking ahead of you on the footpath. Their shopping bag bursts and their shopping goes all over the footpath. And you stop, of course, and help them pick up the stuff. And it's still pouring. And you're running late for a meeting. And now you're soaked to the skin. You don't feel better. You feel extremely annoyed that someone else didn't step in and do that. And now you're late and you're wet and you're cranky. Uh, I, I wouldn't describe that as feeling better. Okay, so, but, but that's, that's a particular example. But taking it back to listening, which one is one of the things you've said is like the kind of the core of it, right? If I, if I listen well to the people that I encounter, I, what happens is that I have a deeper relationship with those people. So I feel more human, more alive, more whatever else it is. So mm. th there is a reward involved in this process. Mm. I mean, we are a very much a reward-based species, are we not? Well, yes. I mean, uh, we I, do I, mean I don't want to have shallow relationships uh, with people. No, I no, want to have people... No, I, want, sure. I, want, I want to be heard and I want to hear. Yes. No, that's true. That's true. And we do seek all kinds of gratifications in life. That, that is part of what, what we do. All I'm suggesting here is that we be careful about the motivation, that, yeah. that we don't think I'm going to, that, that, that I, I, don't, I don't want to think that I'm listening attentively to you so that I will feel better. Because in fact, I might feel worse. I mean, it might turn out that you're a rabid extremist and we're discussing politics and I'm deeply uncomfortable with what you're saying. In fact, I was talking to somebody uh, in the last week who said she was trapped in the hairdresser's chair 
while the hairdresser was pouring a whole lot of extreme right-wing propaganda <laughs> on her, and you know she she was she was she was forced to listen because she was trapped in the chair, and she found it really uncomfortable. But she realised this was a test of the whole principle of whether you're going to hear someone out and fully understood what they're saying and acknowledge that you get what they're saying but then go on to say, I, I see you feel this, I, do, I don't feel it, I don't share that view, I have a different view of the world and I respect that you believe your view but this is my view. Um, you, you don't necessarily come away from that encounter feeling better. In, in our continuing relationships, I think, Stephen, that's absolutely true. In a partnership, for example, where we might have robust exchanges and, and there are some examples in the opening chapter of the book showing that that you know, big arguments can be very good for a relationship if we're listening and attending and responding to each other sensitively. Um, so, the, I mean, you, you, of course you're right, but I, I think yeah, I, I'm urging people to be a bit careful about the perspective, to be not calculating it, to be thinking my, reflect, my default position because I'm human is to be kind. I want to nurture that in me. Uh, that's how I think I can make the world a better place. Will that make me feel better? Well, a lot of the time, yes. Some of the time, no. But that's collateral. Yeah. You know, the real point is I'm being true to myself as a human. So you move on there from, I mean, one of the other things you're saying is that cynicism, that definition you make, you talk about cynicism, but you also talk about scepticism and the importance mm. of being able to bring your intelligence to yes. a discussion as well, so that you can you don't have to you don't have to be a cynic, but you can be a skeptic. You can Yes, be. I think those two are often confused. I think cynicism is a cancer. It eats away at the individual and their influence tends to be negative. Yeah. They they tend to be spectators who mock the players. Yeah. And certainly they mock kindness. You know, there will be cynics who will mock this book. Yeah. You know, what are you doing writing a book about kindness? You know, it's not, not worth a book. Uh, Skeptics, on the other hand, are simply people... I think they're, they're a crucial part of our society. They're the people who say, convince me. The, the skeptic says, you can't convince me. I, I, you know, we're, all, we're all going to the dogs. It's hopeless. Uh, but, the, but the skeptic says... I'm interested in what you're saying. I'm unconvinced, but I'm prepared to be convinced. I'm leaving yeah. the door open. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a very healthy, that's a, that's a very scientific position to take. I'd like to see more evidence before you've convinced me. I think yeah. that's, that's quite healthy, as long as the possibility of being convinced is still present. Yeah. For the cynic, there's no such possibility. Which kind of leads into your next chapter, which is the one about institutions and the importance of the kind of society that we've built up, where we we have to be questioning those institutions all the time, but also supporting them mm. because they're the things that allow us to, the way to live the way that we are. Is that is that a reasonable precy of what you're saying? Yes, yes. I, I describe institutions as like the scaffolding around around society uh, that that give us a framework, strengthen us 
so that we can get on with our lives. So we can, yeah. in, and in particular, so we can get on with being kind to each other and building a harmonious society. Institutions don't do that for us, yeah. but they provide a framework for us, whether it's uh, government uh, or political institutions or legal institutions, excuse me, a cultural, financial, educational, all sorts of institutions are there to support us in the business of creating harmonious, creative, productive societies. And that's their social license. We bring institutions into existence to do that, to promote social harmony, fairness, kindness, etc. When they forget that, when they start serving their own ends rather than th those ends, when they start, uh, when they become corrupted by their own power, as individuals also do, uh, then of course we become cynical, at least sceptical, uh, but disenchanted with those institutions and we've yes. seen that. Yeah. Uh, we've seen that uh, recently with the, the institutional church. Uh, we've certainly seen it with financial institutions, a result of that Royal Commission. Uh, we've seen it with aged care institutions. We've seen it often with political institutions where we've felt this is not about us, this is about them. This is yeah. them serving their own party political agenda or their personal ambition or something else. So there's a, there's a, wonderful, there's a wonderful symmetry really uh, about institutions that, that they exist to serve us um, but we must question them and, if necessary, demolish and rebuild them if they lose sight of that. Yeah. In other words, we don't have to think of institutions as immutable and all-powerful, quite the yeah. reverse. Yeah. And, and, in fact, you were kind of tying... I, I, I looked a quote up because while you were talking there because it was about conventions as well as institutions yes. and, you, and you had that rather lovely line, you know, that, that uh, uh, we need social conventions and institutions to constrain us and they need, they us, need us to, to constrain, constrain them. them. Yes. It was a, it's a, it's yes. a lovely piece there. Mm. And, and uh, I mean, I think one of my great bugbears is, is uh, the government in all its forms has recently in the last, say, two decades or three decades has come up with this idea that we have to, uh, we have to consult with the public. So they set up these, these, these situations where they get people to meet in drafty scout holes every second Tuesday of the month to, to consult on whatever plan it is that they've already decided to do mm. and don't pay a blind bit of notice mm. um, to what mm. the result of all this, these hours of discussion that go on in communities. Mullaney is a, a classic example of one where a lot of us have spent a lot of time in those drafty scout holes just to be ignored by government. And um, it seems to me that that is one of the most cynical examples and one of the great failures of Australian society. I'm sorry, I'm getting up on my high horse here for a minute, but mm. it just you brought it up for me, which is this <laughs> this thing is that Feel free. because because <laughs> the people the people who go to those meetings are the very the most important people in terms of the political life of the mm. community. Mm. And they're the people who very quickly become cynical because they realise it's not working. So they stop, mm. you know? Mm. So the one group that's already willing to give their time and effort to yes. the society are getting are getting turned away yeah. by, by that consultative process. Mm. Well, people in positions of leadership and authority uh, typically have, have 
ad adopt one of two models of leadership. The power model, which is I'm in charge, I know what's best. Oh, I have to go through the motions of consultation, do I? Oh, but I already know. Oh, well, no, we'll get, we'll get some people into scout halls. Bear in mind, the federal government, this, this federal government at the end, I quoted the story in the book, at the end of 2018, uh, was it, 2019, spent $190,000 on empathy consultants. Uh, you can see it's working. In order, <laughs> but in order, there was a specific, there was a specific purpose. Uh, they were going to be talking to groups of farmers who'd experienced that appalling long-term drought. And obviously someone had said, you need to be a bit empathic when you deal with these farmers. Oh, we better, empathy's obviously a good look. We'd better, we'd better get some empathy consultants to tell us uh, how to do it. Now that's, that's deeply cynical, of course. And, and that's, that's the power model of leadership. I know what's best and I'll tell you. Yeah. And the alternative model, of course, is the service model of leadership, which says, well, I'm here to lead, but leaders serve. Uh, I must first understand what the needs are, what the attitudes, what the values, what the aspirations, what are the dreams that I might help these pe people make come true through my leadership. That's the model we yearn for. Uh, and whether it's the the... the executive committee of an owner's corporation or a local government uh, or state or federal government or a business or a school or whatever it is, the, the form of leadership that is going to be brilliantly successful is the service model and the form that is always going to come undone and implode sooner or later is the power model. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm kind of aware that, that I've had you to myself for far too long and that we ought to really go over to some questions. I, I did have one last little question, that I, if, if I might have time to do it, which was just that in, in the book, the, the kind of the end point of the book is this lovely paragraph you write about how uh, kindness, the kindness revolution is only going to happen on an individual basis, like it's only, it's, it, the government's not going to do it for us. No. We, we have to, it has to be a, a ground up movement that works. Mm. Yes, and, revolutions never start at the top. Yeah. Yes. And I, I have a huge amount of sympathy for that point of view, but I also have, uh, I'm aware that there are forces at work in society, particularly at government and at corporate level, who are promoting that point of view. They're saying, you know, you can fix the problem with plastics by recycling, or you can fix global warming by changing your light bulbs. You know, when really that's not the problem. The problem is that they need to change their business models, and government mm. needs to take responsibility for it. And I wondered how you how you dealt with that paradox of yes. social individual social responsibility and what we actually need governments to do. Yes, yes. Thank you. It's a lovely point to end this part of the conversation on. Um, because obviously it's not one or the other. The revolution is about transforming our culture to the point where the political culture is also transformed, that the, the rising tide of kindness, it starts with each of us. I mean, well, let me, let me wind back. Do you dream of a different kind of Australia? Do you, do you ever sort of lie in bed at night thinking, I wish 
people weren't so nice to me. I wish there was more. <laughs> I wish there was more violence. You know, why don't people say less and punch more? You know, of course not. There is a universal dream of a better society, and it is that it would be less violent. It would be kinder, it would be more compassionate, more inclusive, more respectful, more harmonious, less cynical, all of those things. Now, if that's your dream, if you, if you ever do allow yourself to dream of Australia becoming that, not calling ourselves the lucky country, which is an insult, of course, not a compliment, uh, getting by by luck, um, but becoming a loving country, it, the only way to make that happen the only way to start the process is case by case, household by household, street by street, town by town, school by school, church by church, organisation by organisation. We, we, we start to live as if it is that kind of society. And if enough of us are living like that, that's the kind of society it will become. But, but of course, you can't leave out the big national agenda. You can't leave out climate change. You can't leave out reconciliation with the peoples of our First Nations. You can't leave out growing educational inequality. You can't leave out harsh, inhumane treatment of people coming here seeking asylum. You can't leave out desperately inadequate care of our frail aged. In other words, if we start the process of culture change by living differently as individuals, the cumulative effect should be, and we should contribute to it by, you know, at the very next election, saying to a candidate, where does kindness rank in your list of values? I mean, how about the idea that every piece of legislation is first judged according to kindness and fairness? Does it meet those criteria? then we go on. Are you interested in that point of view? Oh, it's not in the party platform. Uh, well, sorry, we'll move on to someone who's talking that... We've got to start talking that kind of language so that, so that the, the rising tide of kindness does reach the ballot box. And we do start. Because we become a different kind of society, we'll get a different kind of political culture. I doubt if I'll live to see this, but... We could start a process that, look at the gender revolution. The second wave of feminism came to our shores in the 1970s. It's now 2021. There's been a massive revolution, a huge yeah. positive change in the direction of gender equality, and we're not there yet. Uh, there's still some way to go. Um, we've got a I mean, I've got a little section in the book on that too. I think we've now, it's now for the final stage of that revolution, We've got to stop talking about feminism and start talking about egalitarianism to understand that it's a project we're all involved in. It's not something women have to do anymore. Um, but anyway, that's a, that's a side issue. Um, but it's the same with this. this. This won't be an overnight thing, but it's, and, it's, and it's happening all the time. All over Australia, all the time, people are behaving beautifully. The pe people in this room will have received or given acts of kindness today. So it's not as though this is some strange new thing. The revolutionary aspect is to say, let's stick at it. Uh, let's make it a way of life. Uh, let's make sure this is the exact... When our children or our grandchildren come home from school, don't say, what did you learn today? Say, what was the kindest thing you did today? Just keep nurturing the idea. Keep bringing it into the language. 
There's a lovely quote from another book that I've used in this book um, of, a, of a boy being asked, what do, you, what, do you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And his answer, kind. <laughs> I wish I knew to say that when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> Well, look, let's, let's um, see if we've got some questions from the audience here. Do you believe kindness is infectious? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a lovely word, isn't it? Especially at the moment when we've got <laughs> <laughs> infections on our mind. Uh, yeah, I think kindness multiplies. Um, I mean, some people won't like, won't like this, but I actually quote towards the end of the book um, from the New Testament, the... the um, the, the miracle story about the feeding of the 5,000. I'm sure you, you're aware of that. Um, where five loaves and two fish, I think I've got that round the right way, uh, are used to feed 5,000 people and there were baskets of leftovers and so on. Now, some people interpret that as... Some people don't interpret that. They just take that as a literal example of a piece of history that's described there. I don't personally have that view. But like all of these stories that come down to us, miracles, myths, legends, that resonate through centuries, that one to me says kindness multiplies. That if you... Be, it, it, infectious is a lovely way of putting it. If you behave kindly, the probability is that the person who's been the recipient of your kindness will be more likely to behave kindly to someone else. And the ripples just go on, and before you know, uh, one act of kindness has fed 5,000 people. Uh, I, I think that's, that's incontrovertibly true. But of course, the opposite is also true. Acts of unkindness multiply. If we're going to be mean-spirited, if we're going to be self-centered, our children very quickly pick up that that's our ethos um, and other people feel emboldened to behave badly by our example, saying it's okay to behave badly. That's partly the Trump phenomenon in the US, permission to act like that. Um, well, let's give permission for people to act beautifully. Oh, we've got three hands there. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Hugh. Have you noticed an increase in this kindness pandemic in recent times? Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why I really am optimistic. Um, the, the, the 2020 produced an absolute multiplier effect. People who had ignored their neighbours started taking notice of them. People who had not even understood uh, the consequences of social isolation, got a little taste of social isolation during the lockdown, thought this isn't very good, and then it dawned on them that there are people in our midst who are either permanently socially isolated or at serious risk of social isolation with all the health consequences that flow from that. Anxiety, depression, loneliness, hypertension, inflammation, sleep disturbance, long list of things associated with social isolation, of course, because we're a social species. If we're isolated, uh, I mean, in our criminal justice system, solitary confinement is the worst punishment we can think of because it is the worst punishment. So during 2020, I think we got a little taste of that. We became a little bit more alert to people around us 
and the acts of kindness that I've heard about, I'm sure you've heard about, of people not just wearing a mask or keeping their distance, but actually offering to do the shopping. For, I, I, I've um, uh, heard a lovely story um, in Melbourne. Uh, a friend of mine is a grandmother, uh, and she said during the, lockdown, during the first lockdown in Melbourne, uh, her daughter and granddaughter invited her, I think she was staying with them, and they were locked down together. Uh, so they, they had the, developed the, the, the habit every Saturday of going to the, the farmer's market, buying a bag of oranges. The two-year-old granddaughter had a little toy pram, put the oranges in the pram, and they marched up and down the street every Saturday, offering each person in the street an orange. Would you like an orange? Uh, and of course, everyone accepted the orange from the cute two-year-old, and they did this week after week. Uh, and they said they stopped when the lockdown ended. They said not only did they get to know everyone in the street and everyone got to know them, but that the the mood of the street changed. The people were now smiling and waving across the street and calling out, "How are you going? Everything okay? Uh, just checking in." Uh, this sort of stuff. So I I think. 2020, now, now, now the, the, the danger, the danger is that we haven't had a big enough disruption. The danger is we haven't had a sufficiently severe jolt for these reminders about our capacity for kindness to stick. But I'm hoping it has been enough. I think if you're in Victoria experiencing the fourth lockdown right now, you're probably thinking, yes, yeah, I get it, I get it. Uh, but maybe for the rest of us, it hasn't been enough of a jolt. I hope it has been. I mean, I'm optimistic because it's been, <coughs> excuse me, because it's been such a disruption to so many people's lives, I think it'll be hard just to set it aside. Some people will just want to slip back into being too busy again and ignoring their neighbours again and travelling too much again and buying too much stuff again and all that stuff and not listening. Um, but I think for most of us, these are powerful lessons and I'm encouraged by the, the extent of the stories that I'm hearing uh, about how people have lifted their game to think that we, we could turn it into a revolution. Thanks, Hugh. This has been wonderful. You've turned me from a, from a cynic into a sceptic. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, there's just um, one more step. <laughs> um, my question is, um, how do you deal with ignorance and prejudice uh, through kindness alone? Like, if, if you're trying to be kind and you're talking to somebody whose ideas you violently disagree with because they're based in ignorance or prejudice, mm. Uh, and you suspect that kindness alone, listening to them, even if you could manage it uh, for a long period of time, would not change their position. Mm. Uh, what's the answer to that? Yeah, and, and look, it's a lovely question, and it's a question I'm sure resonates with absolutely everyone in this room, because we've all encountered it. Um, a couple of things to remember, that the person you're referring to probably thinks you are the victim of your own ignorance and prejudice. So we're coming to this encounter with exactly the same <laughs> view of the other. Um, but look, kindness says, uh, I'm going to respectfully attend to what you're saying, even though I find it abhorrent. 
I'm going to be sure I've got your view straight and I'm even going to feed it back to you. I'm going to say, look, are you saying this? Uh, let, let me be sure I've got this. Are you saying X, Y, Z about climate change or politics or religion or whatever it might be? I just want to be sure I've got this straight. And that'll be helpful to them to, to, be, to, to hear their own view. They might say, oh, well, that's not quite what I meant or it does sound a bit silly when you say it like that or something. But that feedback um, process, part of the process is crucial. And then you can say still kindly, firmly, toughly, clearly, robustly, but still kindly, you can say, like, I have a, I have a different view. Can I just take a moment of your time to tell you how I see it. We may not reach any sort of common ground on this, but at least let's understand each other's point of view. That's as much as you, that's all kindness demands of you. That person will probably uh, leave the conversation still utterly convinced of their view and you'll leave the conversation utterly convinced of yours. But there might have been a little bit of movement or there might have been, quite apart from those views, there might have been a little bit of a surge of mutual respect. That person will find it irresistibly attractive and reassuring that you, knowing that, that you disagree with them, you took time out to get their view, to, to understand exactly what they were saying before... Uh, I mean, in, in other words, you saw that you had to qualify yourself to disagree by fully appreciating what their view is. That's the kindness strategy there, and it doesn't guarantee that you're going to convert that person to their view, but it does guarantee you're not going to have a knockdown drag out. You're going to have a respectful conversation about the difference. And in the process of a respectful conversation, you probably will find lots of other things that you agree about. Is that any help, is it? Mm. Okay. There's a, a, I think there's someone with their hand out just to your... Okay. One, two, three. Uh, as it turns out, I've just read A Humankind by Rutger Brugman. Oh, yes. um, a brilliant book, probably not as good as yours, I'm assuming. I'm, I'm trying to be kind here. Well, put it to the test. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and he, come, he comes with an evolutionary sort of biologi uh, scientific biological sort of uh, framework saying that you know, there's no archaeological evidence that there were wars 10,000 years ago. That once, soon as we, it's the system, not the humans. The humans are kind by heart, but it's the system that says, you know, once we've put a fence around and said, this is mine, mm. uh, this piece of land is mine, then we've actually started fighting about, about territory. Mm. Um, I'm assuming you've read the book, and, and have you got any insight into those sort of, mm. those sort of ideas? Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It is a brilliant book um, and, and a good companion volume. And. <laughs> 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 uh, <I'm laughs> Unfortunately, it's not, it's not for sale tonight. It's only, it's only this one that they have. Uh, no, look, it, it, it's, it is a good book and it does remind us, I made the point just almost in passing in conversation with Stephen, uh, that, that there is neurological evidence uh, that we are a co we've evolved as a cooperative species. Uh, therefore... Uh, as as an, an American neuroscientist that I quoted in the book said, we are wired for the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you, etc. That, that's, that's the kind of creatures we are. But we have other capacities as well. 
we can be distracted from that by, as I mentioned uh, in response to an earlier question from Stephen, we can be distracted by rampant individualism. We can do, be distracted by other pressures, by an ego-driven uh, agenda. And, and sometimes in our society, in fact, generally speaking, as, as that book makes clear, as we've evolved into larger societies, we've needed more and more complex institutions and conventions uh, such as property ownership and you know all kinds of other things uh, that can very easily swamp our natural disposition. Um, so I think reading that book gives you a very a, a terrific long view of how we got to where we are but reminds us that our essence is kindness, hence the title of his book, Humankind. Uh, I think, I think it, is, uh, it is important to remember that we have to make all sorts of concessions in order to live in highly populated societies, but we mustn't lose our essence. We can do all that stuff kindly. Uh, and, and, the, and the hazard, of course, for us is when the conventions encourage, like, such as the, the, the changing conventions that I briefly summarised earlier, encourage our view of ourselves as individuals. Isn't it funny? I, I mean, a, a generation ago, perhaps, maybe less, um, if you said of someone, oh, he's, he's looking out for number one, that was an insult. Now, it's a kind of recommended strategy. <laughs> look, look, uh, look out for number one, as though that's your first responsibility. Well, we do have to be kind to ourselves. We do have to stay healthy. We do have to nurture ourselves in order, as I said before, in order to equip us uh, for the demands of living in a society with fellow humans. Um, but, but I think that that's why I'm recommending the nightly reflective discipline, uh, just to keep coming back to this focal point. Kindness is what we're built for. Kindness is what makes the world a better place. If we want it to be a better place, let's... We won't... You know, I'm not, I'm not naive. I, it doesn't mean we're always going to be kind. We're going to fall short of this standard. But when we fall short, it is a falling short. It is a failure when we behave less than kindly. I think that's a really... We've come to 8 o'clock, so I think that's really a good note to finish on. I think that's a fantastic thing. I'd like you all, please, to put your hands together for Hugh McCann. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you very much.